Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Welcome back to the Impact 360 Institute podcast. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Christopher Yuan about equipping the next generation to understand what the Bible says about sex and gender. So listen in today as we discuss how to disciple the next generation in this area and learn to lead young people into a holy view of sexuality. What does discipleship look like for someone who struggles with same-sex desire or same-sex attraction, any of those categories we've already talked about? Obviously, the call to discipleship applies to everyone, yes. and, I, and I know that's... But, but in, in particular, people wonder, like, well, what's it look like? What's helpful, yeah. I guess? You know? Yeah, I, I think I want to help reframe, because oftentimes I do hear people talking about discipleship when it comes to people wrestling with same-sex attractions. And unfortunately, I think what discipleship looks like, and it has looked like in the past, was a support group or a counseling session. And so we have equated counseling and a support group with what discipleship is. Biblical discipleship is not equivalent to counseling and is not equivalent to a support group. And I'm not saying that those things are bad. Actually, those things can be very helpful, but let's not call it for what it isn't. Those things are not discipleship. Discipleship is very important and it is very biblical. These things can be helpful in getting, you know, kind of dealing with some other things in the past, but discipleship is actually the main vehicle for us to grow in Christ and actually to wrestle and grow in fighting our temptations. And when we look at scripture, this issue is a sin issue. So therefore the answer to sin is always Christ and the body of Christ. So discipleship has to focus upon growth in Christ and it has to be done in the context of the body of Christ. What I see often is this talk about growth in Christ, but it's devoid of any discussion about the local church and the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, in many of kind of the approaches that I see today, whether it's on one side, a kind of a therapeutic, psychoanalytical, developmental approach, kind of trying to change orientation, that focus has little to do with the local church. And I think one of the main reasons why the main organization kind of failed was you know, the Exodus group failed was because it was not connected and tied in with the local church. We have to be tied in with the local church. If we say that Christ is the answer without the body of Christ being involved, you're tying it away from really the main context in which we receive help from Christ. But on the other side, there's this over-focus upon these interpersonal relationships, kind of talking about spiritual friendship and covenant and friendship that ties so much closely to how one or two or three people can be best friends. So this one group of two or three people can be best friends, and that's important. Friendship is extremely important, but actually, when you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's actually very little discussion about friendship. And I think the biblical writers were very intentional about that because they realized that that was not what people most needed. What they most needed was family. In the Old Testament, tons of emphasis upon family, you know, the clans, the tribes. Then the New Testament, very little talk about family covenant. Yes, there is a little, but actually the biggest talk is about brother. You're my brother. If you know Christ, you're my brother in Christ and we have family, and that family is actually the eternal family, which is the body of Christ. So when we get that full understanding, so actually I'm challenging us that we need to actually see as the best context to be working through all sin issues is really spiritual family, not just 
focus solely upon like, let's be best friends for life. That's not what I need. I need Christ and I need the body of Christ. So discipleship happens in that context. And why is that so important in the local church? Is because that is the structure, the, the framework that God has given us. The body of Christ means that there's diversity because, you know, as we talk with Gen Z, Gen Y, the millennials, what they love is their friends. They don't need the church. I don't need the church, they will say, because the church is not a building. That's true. The church is people. True. But then they make the therefore, me and my friends, we are the body of Christ. The mistake is that therefore. I tell my, my students at Moody, you and your friends, you are not the body of Christ. You are all members of the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, you and your friends, you are probably just all a bunch of left hands or a bunch of right toes. We need the whole body of Christ. We need people of all different ages. We need different of all different interests. We need people who are men and women. We need people who are married, single, all. We need the full diversity of different races because we need that to help each other to love Christ and love the world. So the body of Christ is really important. But not only do we get that diversity, but we also have headship. We have leaders shepherds that guide us. And those people are responsible for our spiritual growth. They're to speak into our lives. They're to preach the word to us. They were also to discipline us when we go astray. And they're to disciple us as well. And so discipleship is a person who's older or more mature mentoring another person. Because sometimes we think about discipleship as just friends. Peers don't disciple each other. But discipleship is something that actually is someone that is kind of an overseer, someone that is more mature in guiding another person, mentoring and bringing them to Christ. So discipleship happens best in the body of Christ in the context. And I don't really see that a lot, and we need to come back to that. And so with my emphasis in the end of the book, that focus on discipleship, my last chapter was intentional because I wanted us to remind us full circle, you know, we get sometimes so pragmatic on what we need to do and we lose sight of what really has to be done in light of the gospel. That's really helpful to reframe that whole conversation because I think we have too low a view of kind of the opportunity of what spiritual family can and should be doing for us in the body of Christ, which, which I think is a great way to get at it. You know, lots of interesting ways we could go, and I want to come to a couple practical questions in a second. But culturally, right now, I'd love your input on what we're seeing in terms of Christians having to navigate some of the undercurrents around some of these new ways of viewing even race and gender and things like that, like yeah. critical theory, intersectionality. How is that first kind of maybe define a couple of those things a little bit? And then as Christians who are wanting to be faithful and wanting to love people well, how do we navigate those new waters with all these new kind of movements pursuing justice? And lots of the same words are being used and some good stuff in there, but there's a lot of confusion as well. There is, Jonathan. So intersectionality, I think, is this concept that we really as Christians need to be aware of and know what's going on. So intersectionality starts on a premise that we can all agree on. It's actually pretty fascinating because when we think about racism and discrimination, we often think of a black man or you know maybe a person who might identify as gay or someone who's handicapped. So these kind of minority statuses, and they kind of, there's some discrimination that they might um, face. And those are things that we as Christians, we need to address. It's not something that we just need to ignore. So intersectionality comes in and addresses how our concept of oppression and discrimination, we need to realize that there's tons of complexity. So for example, a black man, 
will actually have quite a different experience than a black woman. A black man is experiencing maybe discrimination because he might be African-American and a minority. However, he is male. Whereas an African-American woman, she will face discrimination, not only for being African-American, but also a woman. So her experience will be different from this man. There's some examples talking about many of the shootings right now. Um, not right now, but in the past several years. If you notice, almost all of them are black men. Almost none, no one really talks about all the shootings uh, against black women. Those are just totally ignored and no one, we don't get in the newspapers, you know, very little. There's some, but very little. And then these ones are, you know, held up as the victims. And, the, and, and, and those are all discussions we need to have. But it's just interesting to note how even among the African-American uh, in the culture and in the community, uh, still black men have, in essence, a little bit more priority or, you know, compared to African-American women. Same thing. So there's all these interplays that discrimination has uh, kind of they, they tie in to different kind of minority statuses. So as people who want to address these things and oppression and discrimination, we need to recognize those things. And so those things we can agree with, that those are present. But then the problem from the secular world is that what is their conclusion? And this is where we disagree. So because of this con complex interplay, when you kind of compare all these different minority groups, whether it's Muslims or Hindus, whether it's the gay community or whether it's African-Americans or Asians, uh, women, all these things, what they begin recognizing is we are people who've been oppressed. And then when they have different identities. So if there's a Muslim African-American woman lesbian, well, she faces a lot more different um, discrimination than just maybe an African-American man. We recognize that. But then once you kind of go with that and the flow that it has taken in the past several years is because of all these identities that we have taken on and that oppression that we are facing, then therefore, the person who has none of these oppressions is the oppressor and is the problem. So therefore, we have all these minority groups. What is the one that doesn't have any minority groups? Sorry to say, Jonathan, it's the white Christian male. So therefore, enemy number one now is the white Christian male. And so therefore, the responsibility, and this is all these things that we don't agree with and I don't agree with, especially even as a minority, that somehow the biggest problem are these people who are pressing all these minority groups. So the white man is the problem. Is that biblical? It's not. Why? The problem is actually not even racism. The problem is not even oppression. The problem is not the white Christian man. The problem is sin. If sin is the problem, Christ is the answer. And sin is a problem that not only the white Christian man deals with, mm -hmm. but sin is a problem that all of these minority groups deal with as well. The other issue is that because of all these identities, because the white man is a problem, these people have to educate the white man. And the more victim statuses you take on, the more authority you have. So authority structure is only dependent upon how many victim statuses I can take on. So like for myself, let's say I still identified as a gay man. I don't anymore. Not to say that I identify as straight either, but this is not, my sexuality is not who I am. But let's say 20 years ago, I would identify as a gay Chinese man. 
I have two victim statuses. So that puts me up several notches compared to the white man who's at the very, very bottom. So, you know, let's say I was Muslim. That would give me another notch up. The more victim statuses that you can take on, the more of a voice you would have. Hence the name of the conference, Revoice. We don't need more voices. We need God's word, period. And this is where we get this confusion and revoice, which is part of spiritual friendship. They are using the same intersectionality conclusions that victim status is the voice of authority now, not God's word is the voice of authority. And the more that we talk about oppression, the more we talk about how the problem is, and, and oftentimes, you know who is the problem? Because we can't say the Christian man, but the church is the problem. And any time where people say that the church is the biggest problem and not saying, I'm not to say that church has room for improvement. I definitely think we have much room for improvement because I'm part of the church. But I know that if, as we see their problem, it's actually human beings that are part of the problem. The church is actually part of the answer, that all of us are part of the answer. And I, and I want to point people to, again, Christ is the answer, and if he is, then the body of Christ also must be part of the answer. And intersectionality points to a different problem. So just as we're talking about suicide rates, when we're saying this is the problem, and it's not the problem, and we keep hammering that this is the problem, we're going to be distracting away from actually finding the real solution. Intersectionality is pointing to the wrong problem, that white Christian male is the problem when the real problem is sin. That's really helpful perspective and context and analysis, and that's only going to become more important for us to understand. Because as Christians, especially who understand that people are made in God's image and who are called to love our neighbors, I want to understand what they experience. I want to know what they feel and the things that happen to them that maybe don't happen to me. And understanding is great, but this whole totalizing worldview of problem, solution, intersectionality, critical theory, it's not going to end in a good place because it doesn't deal with the realities as God defines them in his, in his word and what we've actually got to deal with, which is sin and the roots of those things. Yep. Intersectionality is a helpful concept for those understanding pieces, but let's just take me as an example. As a white man, how do I address or engage these issues? Sometimes it feels like it's hard to do that. It is, and it's really frustrating because right now, as, you know, as a white man, Jonathan, you're not able to be a part of this conversation. And I think no longer are we judging thoughts by the content or individuals by the content of what they're saying. I mean, isn't that exactly what Martin Luther King said? We're not judging people by the color of skin, but the content of their character, right? We aren't doing that. Intersectionality diminishes people down solely to their victim statuses. I, as an Asian man, I know that people will listen to me because I'm not white. And I think that's completely ridiculous. Don't judge me simply because I'm Asian. Judge me on what I'm saying. However, I'm going to use that to my advantage, and I'm going to speak up for my white brothers who don't now have a voice, and I can speak into. And I think that there needs to be a loving Christian rebuke to kind of the secular understanding of, of the conclusions of intersectionality, because I think we need to separate between the, the premise of intersectionality we can all agree with, but it's the conclusions of intersectionality that have just go so off base and honestly is now silencing people who should have a voice in the conversation. Obviously, there's a lot of practical questions that come to mind with the topic, uh, like what you've written on. Sometimes people wonder, 
maybe there's a high schooler listening to this right now or, or a parent wanting to coach their kids on how to have conversations. Yeah. So, but let's say one of their friends comes out to them as gay. How should they respond? Like what, um, what should they do? What shouldn't they do? What's some advice you would have in that kind of a situation for a student? Yeah, I think if there's a student that has a friend that confides with them, I think they need to just learn how to be a good listener. Sometimes we want to, you know, give answers, be like, well, the Bible says this, or you know, don't do this. I think you need to listen. Don't jump to any conclusions because we want to be a good listener to find out where they're at. I would teach, you know, the high school student, I would thank, have them thank the other individual for sharing with them about this, then ask really open questions. Tell me more. What does this mean? Actually, I always also point to this very important open question, which is, how does your faith fit into this? Because what we want to hear is, my faith is everything. My faith is strong. And actually, I am shaping my desires around my faith. My faith is not changing. Unfortunately, what we often hear is, I'm shaping my faith around my desires, or my faith is kind of out the doors on, on the rocks. So what we want to hear is our faith. But if they say, well, I don't have any faith anymore, we then know how we need to begin praying. We need to know how we need to kind of approach them because our friends in the gay community who have walked away from Christ or who have never known Christ, their main problem is really not their sexuality. Their main problem is to fully surrender to Christ. For myself, it wasn't until I fully surrendered to Christ that I was then able to live a holy life and not pursue same-sex relationships. So with this, if it's a high school student, I would just be a good listener. And I would ask questions like, how can I walk with you better? How can I be a better friend? How can I help you with this struggle? I would also then, if they're being transparent with you, I would then be transparent back, be like, you know what, I struggle with it. I mean, because that would be just a great moment to then be really honest and transparent and say, you know what, I'm broken just like you. I would encourage them to say, you know, this doesn't, I'm not going to treat you any different. You're just like any other Christian man or Christian young lady who has a sin nature. And the reality is we all have a sin nature. We all need to, you know, pursue Christ, not give in to our sin. That's great. That's really helpful. So, so what about a parent, a mom or a dad? Maybe their son or daughter, they come to them and say, hey, you know what, this is who I am. Yeah. What, how, coach them in that moment. How should they respond? What should yes. they say? I, they I, I would say it's actually pretty similar. I tell parents, don't freak out. I know maybe inside they're freaking out, mm-hmm. but don't, uh, again, listen. I would tell them, I love you no matter what. This is the problem that often happens with parents. They say, I love you no matter what, and then they follow it up with, but, but, this is wrong, but I'm not going to support your, you know, sometimes they'll use the word, you know, gay lifestyle or, or whatever it is. I suggest don't use that word lifestyle when you're talking with your gay loved one or your gay friend, because those probably aren't words that they use. I never use those words as a gay man, but I would just say, I love you no matter what. Leave that but for another conversation. Hopefully, and I would tell parents, you better have other conversations, but save that for later. And honestly, I'm pretty certain that your kid knows what you believe. They know the but part, but what they are doubting and what many question, and this has nothing to do with parents, but it has everything to do with the world and how the world is saying that parents will never accept you. What your child thinks is afraid of and they're questioning is that you will still love them. 
So just focus on, I love you no matter what, tell me more. It must have been hard telling you, thank them again, like I said before. But then I would ask them, how does your faith fit into this? Because I think a parent wants to know, how can they be praying for their son? If their son says, you know, I am gay, and they're embracing this, again, I would still focus right at that moment, I love you no matter what, you know, tell me more. You know, how long has this been that you process this? But then I would save that but for later and just listen because, you know, that conversation will come and most likely your child knows. If, if a parent is living an authentically transparent, passionate life following Christ, your child knows where, where you stand. So I think those are important things to, to focus on. But I, I also think that you can, you know, tell them, I don't view you any different, you know, but our desire is that you would follow Christ. And that is the main focus. And that Christ, when, when a person fully surrenders to Christ, the Holy Spirit will guide them into truth, convict them of sin, and enable them to live a holy life. So we need to allow, we, parents can't, convict a child of sin. A parent can't help that child live a holy life. I needed to put my faith in Christ first, and it was only then that God indwelt in me by the Holy Spirit to empower me to live a holy life. It wasn't the other way around. That's a really helpful insight. You know, one of the other topics that you talk about in your book, Holy Sexuality, is this idea of getting a better understanding of singleness. Yeah. Maybe talk about the question, is singleness a gift, a calling? What do we do with that? I yeah. mean, there's a lot of people who wrestle with that question. And just kind of maybe reframe that in light of even the earlier parts of our conversation about God's family and a spiritual family and different kind of aspects of that. Yeah, I think singleness often is thought of a calling and it's a difficult calling. So therefore, that's why people talk about individuals who are same-sex attracted, that it is this big burden, almost it's a greater burden to bear. I don't believe that. I don't believe that somehow simply having these attractions or simply being single is a greater burden to bear. We all have uh, the difficulties of fighting with our sin struggle. Following Christ isn't meant to be easy. It's meant to be difficult. There will be trials. There will be tribulation. There will be uh, temptations that we will face. We will be oppressed and persecuted. That's just regular life with a Christian. So, you know, to be single as a calling, we don't really find that talked about in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7 is sometimes talked about that people say, um, this is where 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes about the vocation of celibacy. Two things, celibacy and vocation. Celibacy is not a word found in the Bible. You can't look in, in the Bible. They, sometimes they might put it in the heading, but headings are not inspired. inspired. It's, it's put in by man. But sometimes they will say celibacy in 1 Corinthians 7. Go through the entire chapter, celibacy is never mentioned once. Celibacy is from the Latin word celibatis or celibs. And that word is not even found in the Latin Bible, which is really interesting. If you look in the Latin Vulgate, you don't find it in that, in that translation. Celibacy is actually strictly from Roman Catholic tradition. And as we know, any church history and church tradition must be critiqued against the Word of God. And when it is, we don't find that it is supported, this concept of a chosen lifelong vocation. 
or even the vocation talked about uh, or the calling talked about in 1 Corinthians 7 is not a calling to be single. It's actually a call of salvation. So therefore, it doesn't matter if you are Greek or, or Jew, it doesn't matter if you are circumcised or uncircumcised or whether you're married or single, no matter what condition you are, what matters most is you have been called to salvation. That is what is our guiding principle, guiding life, that everything else pales in comparison to the fact that we have been called to be saved, our call of salvation. So what Paul is talking about is not any type of special call. Singleness is, as Paul talks about, a gift in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. So the question then is, what is gift? I think this is gift is probably the most misunderstood gift of all the gifts out there talk about in the Bible. We even have spiritual gifts. I used to think that singleness was a spiritual gift. As I studied for my book, I realized that actually every time that Paul talks about a spiritual gift, he's always mentioning the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that empowers these spiritual gifts, whether preaching, whether teaching, whether tongues, whether healing, all of that. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is always mentioned in context. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Holy Spirit is never mentioned once. So, most likely, this gift is not a spiritual gift. And it actually makes sense because spiritual gifts are always something that it does something. There's some action, uh, something that is accomplished. If you preach, you do the task of preaching. If you heal, you actually do the task of healing. Singleness, there's no task associated with being single that a married person couldn't do. So the way I view singleness, and this could be, seem like a huge letdown, I simply see singleness just as a gift. The Greek word is charisma, which is from the Greek root charis, which means grace. So actually, this is simply a grace gift. It's something that's given from God for our good. It doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that it's going to have no problems. It doesn't mean that it's going to make us happy but it's for our good and it is supposed to be also for the good of the church. So what singleness is, is something that will produce good in ourselves and produce good in the body of Christ. That's so helpful. You know, obviously so many other great conversations we can have around your book, Holy Sexuality, but I just want to say as we kind of wrap up this conversation, just thank you for your study and thank you for your story, your faithfulness and following Jesus and calling us to holiness, which is so important. And uh, thanks for spending time with our students as well. And so really appreciate you and all that you've done. Thanks, Jonathan. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.